and that comes down to race. And so in this city, that's obviously a very personal thing to me because I'm 6'4", 200 pound black man. Nobody knows, you know, who I am when I walk out of here. I could put on a, I could put on this sweatshirt and, and some shorts and who knows what's going to happen. I could be George Floyd. I could be any of them. I'm Lillian Ruiz. And I'm Charlie O'Donnell. Welcome to the Schlepp to City Hall. The number one New York City election podcast hosted by two undecided voters from Brooklyn. He's got a ton of energy. Yeah, I think I got a little thrown off at the beginning because he reminds me of my uncle, like the way that he's, I'm not going to answer this first question. I'm going to give you the, I'm going to answer the question I wanted to answer. And I was like, wait a second, is am, am I with my uncle Tito? Is it Thanksgiving? Like, where am I? <laughs> so I'm going to let you go first because the last time I weighed in on my initial thoughts. Yeah, it's interesting because I recognize my own bias in some ways in terms of, oh, he's coming from Wall Street. What does that really mean? But I did find him to be interesting. I did think that the way that he was looking at stuff, like from a very like holistic services point of view is very, it was interesting. He seemed to have a much more efficient mindset around it. So those are my initial thoughts, but I I don't want to give away the whole farm. I want to hear what you have to say first before I continue to go on. Yeah. When we talked earlier, you mentioned that you felt like in your network, there was excitement about him. And he is like, he has an infectious personality. Like he, I, I walk away feeling positive and energized about New York. And this is somebody who seriously wants to make this work. And I think that's powerful. I think, look, we've talked about this two ways of approaching a vote, right? Do you vote along a series of issues or do you vote for who just makes you feel that they can do it? And I feel like he will be good at media and getting like rallying people and getting people behind him. And he clearly a a networker and somebody who is looking to build relationships. I think that's pretty compelling, to be honest. Yeah. And it's funny because, yeah, like you said, I do know a bunch of folks who are like, oh, Ray McGuire, Ray McGuire, and are super on board. And in fact, when I was mentioning it to a few friends, oh yeah, this weekend we interviewed Ray McGuire, folks were like, oh, we we want to hear what that's like. But one thing that I, to your point about, he just seems like he's got this infectious energy. One thing that I definitely found really interesting about him is when I was looking at him and listening to him, I was like, you look like an executive. You sound like an executive. Like you look and sound like you could do this job. And one, I thought that was interesting because I think that's a huge difference from probably 10, 15, 20 years ago, where, as he put it, a six foot four, 200 pound black man doesn't look like anybody's idea of of leadership. But so I think it does say how far we come. But yeah, he does give off that energy of I could see him standing toe to toe with police unions. I could see him standing toe to toe with media. I could see him doing it in a way that brings down the temperature because he has that energy of listen, here's how we're going to work this out. And that he does have that kind of like cool calm to him while still being like an energetic persona, I feel like. What's interesting to me too is if you hear people talk about the different candidates. So for example, there were a handful of more conservative, even some Republicans who were trying to advise Republicans and independents to switch their registration, their party registration to vote in the Democratic primary to ensure that, quote unquote, more moderate candidates get in. And maybe because of his Wall Street background, people perceive him to be more moderate, yet he advocates reallocating funds from the police, which is not, he didn't go out and say defund the police, but that is literally the position that he's advocating. And I don't know how many other of his sort of Wall Street brethren would agree with him. But he made a really 
he, he walked a particular line that I thought was really fascinating. And he said, basically, crime is going up and it's, it will continue to go up unless we reallocate the money. So he was playing like this conservative position that's like agreeing with the New York Post. Oh, yeah, crime's going up, even though we're still like at historically low levels, right? Mm -hmm. He's like accepting the New York Post position that crime is going up and therefore saying, but we're not getting our money's worth, basically. So something needs to change about the budget, which I thought was very clever. Yeah, I think hinging so much of his argument on performance in terms of he's using that just like private corporate vision of the thing that gets rewarded with more money is the thing that is doing the right is that's doing the thing correctly. So I think, yeah, that focus on we're going to hinge it on performance. And right now, NYPD is not performing. So like, why do they get to keep this budget? That is a way that to your point, it toes that line nicely. And it also, I think, is something that folks who, particularly, I think, men who see themselves as more moderate or whatever, I think they can latch on to that logic when it's framed in that way. Yeah. I, I think the lane that is interesting is if you think about how New Yorkers have viewed their prior mayors and how they assess the prior mayors, right? If you look at the things that people liked about Mike Bloomberg, you said, well, he doesn't owe anybody anything. He's not beholden. He's not a political guy. He knows how to run an organization. He's performance oriented, all of that sort of stuff. The biggest negative that everyone could, I think, agree on is that he came from a position of being the wealthy white guy that couldn't see clearly enough all of the equity issues. And I think he's coming at this and creating a lane by saying, hey, yeah, I've succeeded on Wall Street and I have all of these qualities of being able not to be beholden to anybody and able to put my own money into this and all of this sort of stuff. But I also come from the position of knowing that I needed to work harder, understanding what it's like to be discounted or prejudged. And so he comes from a lived experience that is very different, obviously, than somebody like a Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that one thing that I like is that he has these like clear ideas of like, where does the work need to happen? But I think that, and there's tons of articles about this and how de Blasio, for example, has gotten so much of this wrong is that he would move away from certain projects or initiatives or talking about certain projects or initiatives when there was that, when there was pushback either from the general public or from the media or from whatever pressure center. So I am, obviously nobody knows until they actually get the job, but I, I was interested. And I think there are plenty of people who would say, well, if people start to shift on certain priorities, then we should discuss it and we should blah, blah, blah. And it was nice to hear someone say, if you got a vision, you just got to get it, like, just got to go in and get it done, which doesn't always endear you to people. But I think if that's like really how he does operate, that's uh, particularly, I think, positive and good thing. Interesting. Without further ado, here's our interview with Ray McGuire. So how does this work? You guys talk and I listen. Is that what it is? Or I talk and you listen? We were hoping that you were going to do a lot of the talking, but we've got some questions for you. This time, Charlie, I'm good with that, man. I'm good with that. <laughs> we are really excited to have Ray McGuire joining us here on the podcast. And I'm going to turn it over to Lillian to start the grilling. It'll be a very, very gentle. Thank you so much, Ray, for joining us. We're so excited to have you. There are so many undecided voters here in New York, our, ourselves among them, that we thought it would be great to talk to each candidate and really get a sense of your background, what your thoughts are, how you think New Yorkers should be thinking about some of these problems. would love to get some of your background. I think 
Most people have the sense of Ray McGuire, City Group executive, and that's that's what's really that's brought- it. <laughs> well, oh, thank you. I so appreciate you guys. You guys, I have so much respect and admiration for you. I'm a little confused about the early observation, though. Like people are undecided, including you two. How can that be? <laughs> a compelling candidacy, and folks is undecided. I'm just trying to stay open-minded. You got to stay open-minded. At some point, you got to step up and look at compelling. This is what this is about, right? This is not like some everyday race for one. It's not like some everyday leader for two. You guys got to get on board. So let me tell you a little bit about who I am, not what I've done. I'll tell you about what I've done. Who I am is my the youngest son of my now 94-year-old mother. And I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, on the other side of the tracks deep in the neighborhood. And my single mother, I didn't know my father, my single mother, along with my grandparents, raised me and my two brothers. And we grew up across the street from the Howard Paper Mill, long before anybody talked about environmental justice, because the Howard Paper Mill sometimes used to emit fumes that were so strong that the only way that we could breathe was to open the refrigerator door. And my mother's a social worker. And as a social worker, raging us, with half a dozen foster children in the home with us at any one point in time. I know what it's like not to have any money. So I know what it's like to, I know what it's like to wash tin foil. I know what it's like to, when you get to the end of the bar of soap, you try to put those bars of soap together to convince yourself you got a real bar. And I heard my mother when she sometimes went through the discussion with whether or not she's going to pay the gas and utility bill or whether or not we could put food on the table or whether or not she was going to put tides in the church. So I know what it's like not to have. And my mother, in the fifth grade, there was a teacher who said they're, they're building a school that built a school in the south of town in the suburbs. And Jesus, a long ways from home. And they asked if we would be interested in going. My mother said, yes, this is all about education, which is the only way out. And so from sixth grade to 11th grade, I went to the school. I walked to a corner, probably three quarters of a mile to a mile away from my house. And the bus picked me up as it came from north of town to south of town. And from sixth grade to 11th grade, I went to the school all on scholarship. In 11th grade, the teacher said, if you're as good as they say you are, why don't you go test yourself against the big boys and girls in the East? I said, where are they? So I took a Greyhound bus by myself at 16 around New England looking for schools. I went to a school called Hotchkiss in Lakeville, Connecticut. And I did you know, well enough there. I applied to six colleges. And I got into all six colleges and decided to go to Harvard College and then did well enough to go into Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. So education was my way out. That's who I am. That's the foundation of who I am. And faith is so much a part of that and prayer. And it gets down to prayer, preparation is another one. Prayer, preparation, performance, because you got to perform, right? This is what it's all about. And then where I come from, you got to have a little bit of paranoia, right? You got to have a little bit of paranoia. So it's prayer, preparation, performance, and paranoia. That's who I am. And that gives you a background. At what point did you track into the financial world? What was the sort of first moment where you're like, hey, this finance thing, this Wall Street thing, this might be an area where I'm going to start my career? I, I never thought about it that way. I, mean, I, didn't, I thought when I came to New York, I actually went to Wall Street. I went to the streets. So, okay, now I'm, all, I'm on Wall Street. I thought this was it, man. I didn't know anything about finance. I had no idea. Nobody in my neighborhood was in finance, you know, other than the folks who ran numbers. Mm-hmm. So that was as close as I got to. It's finance. not that different, actually, apparently, especially after this week. It's a little bit like that. It's I'm a little closer to that numbers thing because my honor doesn't run a bootleg joint. So I understand what that's like. And I learned about finance in my first year of business school. There was a, a, class, a section mate of mine, David Laurent Anderson seen me in section. He said, Ray, I think you'd be pretty, and he had been an analyst. This is a two-year position that they had in business for people who were on Wall Street, and they would become, they graduate, and then they become two-year analysts in one of the firms, and then they go to graduate school and come back. He said, I've seen you in section. I think you'd be pretty good at this finance thing, investment banking. He said, are you interested? And in my first interview, I said, well, I can get interested. And so that started my, my involvement in finance. I'd had a couple of summer jobs, but real finance where I understood what was going on, that was it. 
And the reason that I did this is because that's, I figured this is where lots of impact was taking place. And it's also where the better people, my, some of the better people in my business school section were going. I said, it's good enough for them. Maybe I'll try it out. So that's how I got into finance, Charlie. It was, it was a job, man. I didn't know anything about our career. It's a job. I'm curious as to how coming to New York for this career in finance shaped your view of New York City and how that then shaped your view of why you wanted to get involved in the mayoral race. Well, it's a great question. I came to New York. I had three things. I had a great education. I had a lot of debt and I had no money. And I love New York. It's where I met my wife, my lovely wife, extraordinary wife, Crystal, where we are raising our three children, Leo, who is eight years old, Ella, who's 18 years old, just finished her college applications, and Cole, who's a 20-year-old, who was a first-round draft choice by the Orlando Magic into the NBA, and now is their starting point guard. So it's a city that I love. And if I take I guess that's what they call my lived experiences. It's how I grew up. It's who I am. If they take my lived experiences and take what I've been able to do in four decades on Wall Street, in business, management, or sometimes bigger than state budgets, building teams, negotiating. I've negotiated six to seven hundred billion dollars worth of transactions. Doing all that, and I bring in that with along with a lot of the relationships I've been able to develop across business across government, across the civic sector and arts and culture and education, healthcare, even in the criminal justice system. I take all that and I say, if there's ever a moment in time when somebody who has all that in a city that is broken and divided, where we need real leadership, it's that moment in time. Remember, I quit my job. I didn't get termed out. I'm not looking for a promotion. And so I bring all that together. So I means I don't owe anybody anything, nothing, zero, bupkis, nothing. And so I take all that and say, if there's anybody who can bring this city together, manage it and lead it, because I managed complex businesses, global businesses, in the height of the financial recession, dire straits of the financial recession, done that and built teams and managed and led out of that. That skill set is, if there's anything that's needed today, then it's that. So Do you I, think you still would have ran if 2020 had not played out the way it did between the pandemic and, and everything else? That if we were in, if we're sitting here 2019 and the mayoral race is happening and things are a little more normal than they were in 2020, would you have felt the same calling? That's a great question, and the likelihood is yes. Why is that? It's because what COVID and George Floyd have done, and I've written about this in a forward to a to an analysis that was pretty in-depth, probably definitive analysis, is written by uh, a young black woman economist, and she obviously had some support from other economists, actually, the lead economist. But I looked at that and I said, what this current situation has done is un unveiled, un un unveiled, revealed the systemic inequities that have existed, long existed in the economy, in education, in healthcare, in the criminal justice system. We saw eight minutes and 46 seconds of a cold-blooded murder, and that brought this country together. Oddly enough, we hadn't been together. We'd been so divided in that moment, along with coma, but that moment in and of itself says we're better than this. But in so doing, it, it put a spotlight on all the inequities that had occurred. And what I wrote about in that forward was just those inequities, 400 years of systemic inequities that resulted in a negative impact on the U.S. GDP of 16, the U.S. economy of $16 trillion. And it goes through and it identifies in, in very simple ways the impact this had on black and brown communities in specific. So the answer... The answer to is the likelihood is yes, because the problems have persisted without an answer. We haven't addressed it. We've gone backwards, especially during this administration, backwards. And there's so many people out there who are marginalized for whom there's not a voice that you need somebody who's got the range from the streets to the streets who can bring this city together now in a way that is we so desperately need. So that's why I'm running. That's why I'm running. We need leadership, Charlie. We need leadership. That's why I'm stepping up. 
Yeah, it's interesting because in your story and that you were just mentioning, you know, the two things you brought up were the path forward through education, and then now you've been speaking about economic inequality. I'm curious about what do you see as your unique approach to broach those those issues and how that stands out from how other candidates may be looking at those solution sets. So just remember the solutions that I'm describing are solutions that others, notwithstanding the advertisements, we've yet to get to. We've gone backwards. So in education, which is fundamental to me, but let me tell you what my platform is so you understand why this is so compelling. Versus the economy. No jobs, no city, no jobs, no dignity. We have to get the economy back. I've just this week outlined in detail my plan for the greatest, most inclusive economic recovery in the city's history. So I've outlined that, and we can come back to that if you'd like. But it's go big, go small, go forward. Inclusive, creation of 500,000 jobs. The other is safety, security, and quality of life. We've yet to address that. We've seen the abuses. We have yet to do anything about the serial abuses. We've yet to return the respect between the community and the policing. We've yet to allocate the budget the right way. We've yet to do any of those things. And we see the consequences of that today in stark relief. And so we have to address that. And the other is education. So it's the economy, safety, security, and quality of life, and education. Those are the things that we have to address. Those are fundamental to who we are. And when New York leads, the country takes New York's leadership. The world takes New York's leadership. And right now, it's in serious debate. We're serious. We're, we've got a crisis. We've got two or three crises at the same time that we have to address. So, so what's uh, between me and the rest? First of all, I have a track record of having done, executed. Remember, when you have budgets, and I've managed budgets at least 50 for 13 years, what happens if you don't manage the budgets? It's very clear. Your people don't get paid and you don't get paid. It is not a popularity contest. It's a performance contest. You've got to perform. You know what, Lillian and Charlie, if you look like me, don't you think you've got to perform so that it withstands every level of scrutiny that exists? And I'm the longest standing head of this business in the history of Wall Street. So that's how I think about it. That's what distinguishes me. This is all pure performance. Obviously, I got faith behind that, and obviously, I got to prepare. And I can't, you can't believe the hype, which is where the paranoia comes. You got to perform every single day because if you don't, they take you out. So, had you been mayor, maybe we'll, in a way, to get specific on some of these issues, had you been mayor over the past year, what are some of the specific moves? And I'll bring up like three specific areas. One is early pandemic response and ongoing. Two is the city budget. We we had a budget that got passed in June that was obviously had a lot of debate and, and was controversial. And then three, the racial equity protests and response to them. I, I'd love to hear what your approach might have been had you already been mayor that would be different than what we would have seen. You know, it is in a year's time, what we could have done on each of those, but let's just take the pandemic. We could have planned better. We could have planned better nationally. And we could have been planned better locally. What as said, as I've said before, what COVID uncovered were things that we already knew. We knew the demographics. We knew the communities that were going to be the hardest hit because they're the ones that are in the healthcare deserts. You don't have primary care facilities. You don't have the right, health and when it comes to diets. And so if this virus were to be designed to have the biggest impact on the most marginalized communities, which it did, it wasn't designed to do that. It's just, that's what happened. And so we could have had relief early. We could have had relief early, which we didn't do. We could have planned for it early. We're always trying to catch up and you can't catch up to a pandemic. You got to do as much as you can to manage it with the data. And then you have to go to the areas that are the hardest hit, which is what's not taking place when we're distributing the vaccine. But you got to know where the hardest hit areas are. And the other thing that we're not doing, nobody's actually talking about is, what are we doing to the lingering, those people who have lingering impacts of COVID and these communities most hard hit? What are we doing about giving them the healthcare facilities? What are we doing about giving them the healthcare? We have yet to address that. So that's healthcare. The other, I think, was the budget. But we now know that we're facing a budget that 
year is that we haven't addressed some of the things that are most acute when it comes to efficiencies, when it comes to growth, when it comes to the things that are going to be necessary, when it comes to taxes, for example, real estate, property taxes, the inequities there, where that's clearly an inequitable, inequitable by, by zip code, by value. It's just not right. And so we need to, we should have addressed that, which we didn't. And now we are, because we didn't address a lot of those, a lot of those budget issues, then you've just seen what's happened to the budget. We got a 15% decline in, in taxes, property taxes. We look at the construction industry, which is so important. Unions are so important. Labor is so important. Down 20% in, in, the, projected, in the projected projects. Just think what's going to happen fourth quarter this year. I got no hard hats. I got no shovels in the ground. And I, no, I got no cranes in the air. We have to plan for these things. And so what I bring to the table is having planned during, the, during moments of crisis and making certain you're surrounded by the best people to help you plan out of this. Not only just plan, but to execute. We did neither planning nor did we executing. And so you have to address that. And the third, remind me, Charlie, you wanted to go through. Yeah, is the racial equity protest that we saw over the summer and the, the mayor's response and, and how you might have manage that situation and responded differently. So you have to go to the culture of policing, right? You saw you saw in Washington just look at the two different in- images within months of each other. One when we had the peaceful Black Lives Matter protests and you saw how the Capitol steps were armed. And then you saw the insurgencies, the attempt to overthrow democracy and the Capitol steps were there for the most part. And that comes down to race. And so in this city, that's obviously a very personal thing to me because I'm 6'4", 200-pound black man. Nobody knows, you know, who I am when I walk out of here. I could put on, a, I could put on this sweatshirt and, and some shorts, and who knows what's going to happen. I could be George Floyd. I could be any of them. So I am quite sensitive to that and quite sensitive to how we go and address that. So my approach would be, one, to have a commissioner that, who reflects my values, and so I would make certain that commissioner was a commissioner who was well-respected, who reflected my values. To the extent the commissioner doesn't reflect my values, and that commissioner is not for me. And I will have the choice of who that commissioner is, and I will make that choice. All current leadership, tender their, tender their resignations. Go into the pool if you'd like to, but I'm going to make the choice on my watch who's going to be my commissioner. And then I want to make certain that I have a culture of what I call rap. Police need to be respectful, accountable, and proportionate. We no longer have respect between the community and the police, in large part because we have not held those people who are the serial abusers accountable. You know, Charlie and Lily, we pay $200 million a year for the serial abusers so we can settle the cases. Just think about that. So you need to have accountability. And when you restore, when you have some accountability, the community is going to think, okay, maybe we can trust this, but with no accountability, and all the headlines of folks getting knees on their neck and, and getting shot with all that, you see there's no trust. And then finally, proportionality. It has been said, if the only thing that you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When it comes to black and brown communities, it's a sledgehammer. And what we know is that four out of 10 calls that go to 911 have to do with mental health issues. And so I want better policing. I want to take the dollars away from the police budget and I want to reallocate them. I want to restructure. I want to reallocate so I get dollars into the mental health care professionals. So I get dollars into the community centers. So I get dollars into the violence interrupters. And so that I can return to community policing, where there is a relationship between the community and the police. It used to be that in the community centers and police athletic leagues, we had that. We no longer have that. So that it is so divided between the communities and the police who we expect take the oath to protect us. We have to get rid of that. We got to create a divide, large part by starting with accountability. So my police commissioner on my watch, me being held accountable. That's the standard that I want to set. Yeah, I'm curious as to, and there's there's so much in there and so much to prioritize. I'm curious as to what does, what would day one in a Ray McGuire administration look like? What is, what's happening in City Hall on day one? Where do you start? So day one, jobs. First, you want the first hundred days. Day one, jobs. And I would outline and execute on my jobs plan. 
That's go big, go small, making certain that the small businesses have several things that we've outlined. And those have to do with getting relief, getting wage concessions and wage subsidies, getting relief off the utility bills, putting comeback banks in the communities, making certain that we address the credit scores, the FICA scores, and making certain that they get relief with utility. So I've outlined in detail what I intend to do with small businesses. They are the lifeblood of the city. 500,000 jobs, half of which go to small businesses. We've lost 600 plus thousand jobs. So that's go small. Go big is create an infrastructure that's going to go to fractured bridges and sewage mains. Infrastructure that goes to affordable housing, truly affordable housing, not based on an area median income, which is based on Westchester, which is not truly affordable. It shouldn't be the case that you pay 50 to 60% of your rent on housing. That's just not sustainable. And then I want to make certain that I would go to what is more fundamental today in a digital economy, and we've seen the impact of it, broadband. We need to build the technology of the future and have all of our kids have access to broadband. Right now, we've got a million and a half students and growing who don't have access to broadband. Just think about the generation that we've created as we went from out of school, in school to out of school, and what we've lost. And so that gets to my education plan also, which is the second thing that I focus on. That is cradle to career, where I would start it. Pre-K is good, but many of our kids get to pre-K and they're behind. I start early, zero to four, toddler care, child care, parent care. And then I would, I want to make sure from my account that at the end of the third grade, every child in New York City can read. Why is that? Because you all know, and the data has showed us that between zero and the end of the third grade, our children are learning to read. After that, they're reading to learn. If they never learn to read, we talk about remediation, but we have too many people already behind, so we can't remediate. That would be from my account, and I would want to create a tutor core, certified teachers, maybe college students to make certain those kids could read. And then I want to start at the sixth grade, and this is all the things I'm going to implement in the first 100 days. Sixth grade, getting our kids exposed to different career opportunities, whether they be they can be coders, they can be welders, they can be programmers, they can be software engineers, but I want to get them exposed to jobs different careers, and I want to have the private-public sector relationships, partnerships come together so that the public sector, we can't afford to do all of it in City Hall, but I'm going to call up around this city, the chief executives, whom I know quite well, and get them to give us summer jobs. I had a summer job. I dug footers. I laid tiles. I changed bedpans. I DC'd IVs. I was a gopher, and I did a whole bunch of things that today I look back and that it gave me a job. And that is so important. Our kids need to have something on which they can rely that gives them some dignity. And so that's what I would do. And by the time they finish high school, they can either go into that career to which they've been exposed, they can go to a two-year, four-year college. And so during my first day, I would begin to do that. But I would also, in my first day, address something that is so acute today. Many of our kids don't have tablets or laptops. I would get them tablets or laptops. I would call around this country, to the people whom I know, who make them, and say, I need X amount of laptops, X amount of tablets, and I want them to work. Not the ones that you've just second or third hand, but I want them to work. And that's what I would do, just to make certain these kids have the opportunity today, because right now they don't have the opportunity. They don't have the opportunity, and we need to give them that opportunity. We're failing our children, and I want them to have the same opportunity. You talked a lot about reinvesting in many ways in New York, right? From a infrastructure perspective, from an education perspective. And I'd be interested in your particular take on this because I feel like when New Yorkers approach a a budget gap, they always imagine that somebody else will pay. And when they look to who that is, the vast majority of people saying the the rich aren't paying that their fair share or let's go after Wall Street again. And one of the things that I have a personal concern about is, as we've learned in the past year, careers and business are more mobile and more flexible than they have ever been before. And people are learning that they can do their job at home. Now, i still look forward to interacting with people in person, but there's always the danger that you 
overtax and overdraw the very same people whose money you need to have in New York to help reinvigorate the economy. So for all of the programs that you're thinking about, and when you think about the budget, where does the money come from and how do you both make sure you don't cut and you do the reinvestment necessary, but you also don't scare away the people for whom the the taxes and the tax base needs to necessarily come from? Where, where's that balance? Joe, you're absolutely right. We have to strike a balance. But the thing that you have to understand is people want to be here. We have to solve the quality of life issues, right? People are here because it's amongst the best quality of life for many. It is not for many also. So we need to address that. When it comes to the budget, the way I've approached budgets, all the budgets that I've, that I've had to manage, is you cannot cut your way out of it. You cannot tax your way out of it. So what's going to be required? I want to step back and look at this budget holistically. I mean, I look at every line item that I've looked at, gone through and talked to many of the experts here, the Dick Ravages of the world, the Peter Solomons of the world, other people, many of whom have been in leadership roles who were there in the 70s, who looked at the budget. And so what is going to be required? We're going to have to look at efficiencies. We must look at efficiencies. And those people who can pay more, like myself, are going to have to contribute more. But we can't, We got to grow our way out of this. So the job program that I talked about, which is that on which I am so focused and I'm uniquely positioned to, to execute on, because I know the people who can support this. We're going to need public and private partnerships. We need a public-private partnership to do those summer jobs, to which I'm referencing. I want the private sector to be part of that. How we finance this to the extent that we need, and I think we probably have enough capital to be able to and enough already allocated. And we're going to get funds from the federal government and from the state on the infrastructure. So I think we're going to have the resources needed. But to the extent that we need on that side, there's so much capital available. So the vision that I have is to be inclusive growth where we grow. You can't cut your way out of this. It has never been the case that you can cut your way out of this. And remember, some of the finest moments have been at some of our darkest hours. We built the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building at the beginning of the Great Depression. We can do this when we come together. It can't be us versus them. Charlie, Lillian, it's got to be us together. And I can bring this city together in ways that nobody else can, because I have the relationships from the streets to the suites. I speak the language of both. I know what the needs are. I've been there. I've lived it. This is not something that's made up. This is not an advertisement. This is real. I've executed. I got a track record that's verifiable in the most competitive business where I've made certain I could allocate the dollars to the entrepreneurs, to the young tech art entrepreneurs, to the young black men and women and white. I've done this. I have every confidence we can get this done. And it's got to be us. It ain't me. It ain't about me. It's about we. And so I'm the person to lead the we coming together. And all those people you're talking about who are leaving, we have the essential workers, we have the face-to-face workers, and we have the, w- the WFH, the work-from-home workers. We need to have them in New York. We need to bring them back, and people want to be here. And we got the cultural scene, which I'm going to invest in heavily, because I've been so invested in that for 30 to 40 years. That's the vibrancy of this city. The best minds, arts, culture, arts education, the best minds in each of the boroughs. Broadway, 66 million tourists. We can do this. We know where the people are. We know the people won't invest here. The people like you, two of you who love this city. Yeah, a lot of people love the city. And if you ever aspire to be great, you come to New York City to be great. This is it. What do you think has stood in the way? Because a lot of the things you, you know, talked about, the current administration or other political leaders speak to and say they want to get done and maybe have struggled with. In your assessment, as you think about who's been in government in New York, what do you think is the reason why some of these things haven't been accomplished to the extent that you think they they should have? Lack of vision, lack of leadership, lack of management, lack of relationships. Lack of actually executing and having a tracker and experience. So those are the things that are outstanding. People have great visions, but we've gone back with those visions. And I don't know if they're vision. They had great slogan. But we've retreated. Just look at the facts. We've gone back. The most marginalized have gone backwards. 
And remember, I come into this, I, I don't owe anybody anything. I quit my job. I didn't get termed out. I did, I'm not looking for promotion. My sole focus is what's in the best interest of New York City. That's, it, I love. that's my sole focus. I got one agenda, Lillian. I got one agenda, Charlie. That's for what's best for New York City. That is it. I don't want anybody anything. When you think about execution and, and management, what is the Ray McGuire management and leadership book? If I What's the cliff notes on that book? Like your style of it. If somebody who worked for you, what would they say that your leadership and management style is? It is what I had to do, Charlie, at the depth of the great financial recession, build a team and a firm that was on life support and to be able to attract, retain some of the best talent in the industry who decided of all the places that they could go and pursue their careers. They did diligence on me and decided this is the leadership under which they wanted to in their family's livelihood. So what does that style look like? It's a style of integrity. It's a style of making certain that I put them and their families first. It's a style of being inclusive. It's a style of transparency. It's a style of support. It's a style of not only management, but leadership. And it's a style of making certain that only did I support the followers, but I made certain that we had great leaders. And what great leaders are known by is developing and investing in other great leaders, making other great leaders. So the pride that I have is in the talent that we're able to recruit and getting input from that talent and making sure that I had some of the best minds that existed in the world of what we were doing, in the world of business, so they could give me the input so I could be the best that I could be. And if you look at that, look at all the people who were my direct reports who I recruited. Over the time that I was in a leadership role, which is 13 years, direct reports, I have lost, I'm going to say a handful, it's less than that, one to the UK government and one to the US government in all those years, all of whom had choices, all of whom had choices. So the leadership style is one there that is, you can go verify it. And the other thing is, I never ever, which is where the transparency came in, comes in, I never said anything behind somebody's back that I wouldn't say to their face so they knew how they're being managed and how they're being led, complete transparency. And so people begin to trust and they trusted me. And you know what? That trust is sacrosanct. Leadership has trust as a core element. The result of which is that people will, if you have a vision, and I also had a vision, you have a vision that is outlined and you have a track record of executing, then people will say, I'm going to trust in this leadership, which is what happened to me which is why I'm so proud of the people whom I was able to recruit and to support and look at the number of mentees that I have out there and whom I'm so proud and who I so admire. And that's what leadership is about. It ain't about me. It ain't about me. It's about we and it's about them being the best that they can be, me supporting them to be the best that they can be, which is how I was able to manage that budget for as long as I did and stay in that role for as long as I did longest in the history of Wall Street. I'm proud of our team. They were extraordinary. So I have a question in terms of the vision that you have for New York, the sorts of projects that you want to put into place, um, especially in those first hundred days, through these variety of partnerships, private and public, they're all to solve these huge, basically these huge problems that take time a lot of times. And and New Yorkers are known for being both impatient, but also sometimes losing track of the progress on a big on a big project or a big initiative. I'm curious as to how do you use your method of leadership and management to keep New Yorkers focus on some of these issues? Or is it more about just rolling with the punches and, and changing initiatives almost as the electorate changes over time? No, you can't do that. When you're that random, you don't stay in a position of leadership that long. You have to outline a vision. You have to stick to that vision, get extra in that vision. And far too long, people have there been weather vanes. I've not been a weather vane. I couldn't afford to be a weather vane. The standards that are set for me are probably higher than the standards that are set for anybody else. They recognize that going in. My mother taught me that a long time ago. I can't just be equal. I got to be better. 
to the people who look like me, where I've made so many investments, the reason I talk and the reason that you have the followership that you have and the mentors, the mentees that you have is because you're teaching the rules of the game. Ralph Allison said, play the game but don't believe in it. And my man Omar from The Wire says, there's a game out here. You either play or you be played. And so you have to understand what's taking place out there. And you have to understand the inequities and the systemic inequities. So we talked about a lot of these things. I'm also talking about focuses on, in, on the minority and women-owned businesses where there's not been a focus. In the construction, the goal is to get 8% of the construction to what they call MWBE. Do you know how much has gotten there? 0.7%. 0.7. That's no progress. But we're going backwards. And something else about my leadership is that I've never had to, if I could, if it was done by a handshake, which is the rules of the neighborhood I grew up in, and I don't need a paper to codify it. You got my handshake. And you know what? I've never not fulfilled a commitment, not once. I make a promise, I'm going to stick to that promise. I give you my word, that's it. My word's my bond. That's neighborhood. That's how I grew up. But if I'd ever one time breached that, I'd have never lasted. My word is like trust, the sacrosanct. And so what I tell, I'm going to do what I'm telling you I'm going to do. I'm going to do. This is the plan. And if somehow I see a headwind that I can't control, I'm going to tell you, this is what's going on. This is what's going down. And this is how I intend to deal with it. Which is why I say is you can trust and verify. It's there. I'm going to take care of the people who haven't had a voice. Remember how Maynard Jackson did in Atlanta? I'm building an airport unless I get some people in here. You get Coleman in Detroit, comes into a room. Ain't no black people in this room. Ain't no, this, the meeting's over. And they're going to start until you get some people in here who, who look like me. You need to have somebody in a leadership role who's going to demand that. And up to this point, we give lip service. We give lip service to it. Nobody demanded that. This is all New Yorkers. That's my agenda. So I'll ask one last serious question, and then we have uh, a, a couple of lighter ones. So you talked about reallocating police budget, mm-hmm. and I think when some parts of New York City hear that, they immediately associate that with if you take money away from the cops, is crime going to go up? And how should the average New Yorker think about crime and budget right now and, and that kind of reallocation plan? I think it is an incorrect assumption that if you reallocate dollars, crime's going up. We already have pretty high rates of crime. If we don't reallocate dollars, crime is going to continue to go up. If we don't reallocate dollars, those who are mentally challenged will not get the services that they need. If we don't reallocate, those who are in the communities who have nothing to do will not get the service that they need. They will not get the distraction or the, the something to do that they need. If we don't reallocate, the, the, the violence interrupters' ability to scale that, won't, won't, we won't be able to do that. So if we don't reallocate, crime's going up. So I hear that. And let me be clear. I want better policing, not fewer police, better policing. So I'm focused on getting better policing and reallocating to make certain that we can support the police. And better policing means holding those who are the serial abusers who give a cloud, who create a cloud over the entire police force to make, to make those people accountable, visibly accountable. And if we don't do these things, Charlie, crime's going up. I'm not, it is not, a, it is not an incentive to, for crime to go up. I'm just looking at the facts. We got a five plus billion dollar budget. Crime's going up. We need to reallocate to put the, effort into invest in the efforts that the police just aren't trained to do. Mental health, growing incidents of mental health. Four out of 10 calls that go to 911, Charlie and, and Lillian, have to do with mental health issues. If, as I said, it's, if, if the only thing you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail in black and brown communities is a sledgehammer. We have to get away from that thought process. That is a, that's a false assumption that if you take dollars away, crime's going up. It should be the case if you reallocate dollars, crime will come down. The data shows us that. The science shows us that. Evidence shows us that. Reallocate those dollars. Get me some community centers. Get me some mental health care. Give me some social workers. Give me some investment in the violence interrupters. Give me that. My crime's going down. And give me the right commissioner who's got the respect, who can restore the respect and restore the trust and who deals with these situations proportionally. Give me that. My crime's going down. 
ain't going up. Okay. And it's down. I can get this done. Cool. We'll finish off with a lightning round. And the first one right off the bat, because this might, it might cause some family controversy, but so Nick's nets are magic. Come on, Charlie, you know the answer to that. <laughs> I don't call it no confusion. We going my man down there for the magic. Number 50, find him up, man. Start point guard. I like the Knicks. I'll be clear, man. Cole Anthony is our guy. We betting on him all the way. Okay? I don't have any confusion. I was confused at the start about my candidacy. I hope that's been cleared up. I want to be clear. I got the same definitive response on this. Magic Cole Anthony. Done. What's next lightning round? What y'all got? Okay. Then Mets, Yankees. Yankees. Jets, Giants. Giants. Rangers, Islanders. Mm, I think I'm going to go with the Islanders. All right. (laughs) And then maybe the most controversial question that we'll ask you, what is your favorite slice of pizza in New York? And is it the round or the square? It's, It's on, and I have it right here. It's called Leo's Pizza, but it's not Leo's Pizza. It's on 70th Street and Broadway, right on the corner there. And I think it's maybe a raised pizza, but we go by there and that's our favorite. This thing is just, it is really sinfully good. Sinfully good. We also like Patsy's, which is a block or so away from us, but those that we love and we go with the slices, man. I ain't going to square it. And I ain't got no knife and fork either. I'll be clear with you about that, okay? I got, <laughs> I got a lot of napkins. I ain't got no knife and no fork, okay? I get it all over my mouth. It was good, man, especially the ones down on, on 70 with Leo's Pizza, Ray's Pizza, but that stuff is so good. You want the number? Because I can give you the number. <laughs> I think we're... <laughs> I think we're good. And I think we're all in agreement on the knife and fork issue across the five boroughs. I think that's that's not a controversial point. But, I'm looking, well, listen, we got it, man. I got it. 212-288-22, man. This place is the joint. I'm telling you, y'all going there. It's going to be like, like, I don't get supersized in there. I get like a little, you know, what I get. I don't do the small thing. I may do a little carbonated water. Uh, that's what I do, man. I'm not put a little lemon. I got one right here for me. Just uh, you know, by the lightning round. I'm good with that, man. I just may have that piece of night. You guys gas me up. I may go over there now. Just order. I just may walk over there, put my Jordans on, and walk over there, man. That's what I'm going. <laughs> Fantastic. Listen, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. We know it's uh, a, a busy campaign, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you guys so much for respect and admiration for y'all and what you're doing. And if it weren't compelling at the start, what's compelling now? Okay, if you don't know, now you know. Okay? Okay. Have a good day. Appreciate it. Guys, talk to you later.